Welcome to Into the Colaverse, a podcast that takes us on the unique journeys of faculty in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Join me, your host, Frederick Luis Aldama, as we learn of the many ways that our faculty and their cutting-edge work is transforming the world today. It's my special honor to be here with Bassam Siddiqui to talk about, well, parasitic empires, germ theory, pandemics in general, but also amazing things like poetry and, you know, essays that are modeled on the Indo-Persian mode of oral storytelling. Bassam, welcome. Thank you, Frederick, for having me. Bassam, tell me, what is, gosh, I mean, there's so much on your Vita, of course, Um, you know, bachelor's from Georgetown University, master's medical humanities and bioethics from Northwestern, PhD recently, very recently from the University of Michigan, and now assistant professor of English and medical humanities at the University of Texas at Austin with us. But let's go back and talk about your origin, uh, your superhero origin, if you will. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can speak a little to um, you know where I'm from and and how my life has has shaped my intellectual and creative pursuits. Um, and and so I, I was raised in Karachi, which is at this point um, I don't know uh, the third largest city in the world by population. I think um, in 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 Pakistan. Although I, I think now its its population is increasing exponentially. I think at this point it's like 25 million, um, if I'm not wrong. But I, w- I was raised there. Um, but in fact, I was born even in in interior Sindh in this um, city called Sakhar. Um, and I, yes, I was born there. Um, and then when I was six months old, my parents and my family we um, migrated to Karachi because that's where like all the best education was. That's where all the great job opportunities were. And and so with my siblings and and me and my parents we moved there and and so you know I you know we were fortunate enough to you know my parents were able to send us like me and my siblings to very good schools um, and you know the legacy of British colonialism in the subcontinent is such that um, you know all our education you know was we were in English medium schools so all of our education was, you know, in English, except for <laughs> the, the subject of Urdu, which was the Urdu language. Um, and, and then so, you know, one of that was one of the things when we, when we eventually made our, we migrated to the U.S. was kind of, well, whoa, your English is so great. And, you know, and then I had to tell Americans that, well, you know, <laughs> it's 300 years of British colonialism will do that, um, you, you know. Um, but, but yeah, uh, so that's, but, but even, you know, in elementary school and middle school, I, I wasn't, I had no idea that I would, you know, pursue a doc, pursue doctoral work in English. That was a long way off. You know, in the beginning, I was more of a math and science guy. And then, you know, that's my family, right? So my sister is now, you know, an MD. But even from the beginning, sort of my, a lot of my uncles and aunts, they're physicians. Uh, my dad, he's an, uh, he was trained as a mechanical engineer. Um, and then, so, you know, and my, for my mom, it was all this, you always, you know, imagine me as a physician, you know, and, and so, you know, and then eventually I, I, I started to discover this really, really sort of great love for literature and history and sociology and just the humanities writ large. Um, 
Yeah. And, and then, then sort of in 2010, when I had just finished, a, like I, I had just one year of high school left, we migrated to the U.S. Um, my mom's brother, he's, he's a physician. He's lived in Kalamazoo, Michigan for about 30, 35 years at this point. So he sponsored my mom and, and her family for migration to the U.S., and that was a process that began in 1998, I believe. And so it took about 10 years for our green card to get processed. And then we finally got it at the right time because my sister and I always wanted to go to college in the U.S. And, and so that's how it ended up working out. Um, and then we, we came to from Karachi, we came to Kalamazoo, Michigan, of all places. <laughs> and it was extremely disorienting, um, you know, coming from one of the biggest cities in the world to this veritable, you know, um, village, as it were. And, and, you know, the silence, especially for us, was very disorienting and deafening. But, you know, and then, of course, we saw snow for the first time. You know, Karachi is a very tropical um, region. And then so that was in itself very, very, <laughs> at least at least that winter in that December of 2010, I believe, was especially in Michigan, was very, very cold. And, you know, so, the you know, these experiences, um, I, I was doing my final year of high school there. And that was very different from British education. You know, the American system is so different. And so just adjusting to all of these things and then, and, and then, you know, um, as if all these traumas weren't enough, uh, you know, six months after. So in February of 26, February, 2011, I was diagnosed with, um, leukemia, T-cell, um, um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia is, is the name of the cancer. And, um, you know, and, and so that was kind of, you know, I, I, and then I was admitted to the hospital and then that was, it took three years of treatment. So a combination of chemo and radiation to sort of, you know, so, so it was just, you know, migration itself, but then illness. And so you can, you can already see sort of how that sort of experience would lead me to what I'm doing now, which is studying the medical humanities, but within the post-colonial studies, um, framework, right. So how diseases are conceptualized, but then, um, sort of I, I, when looked through a post-colonial studies angle, how diseases are racialized within the colonial encounter, how medicine is, 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 a, is a discourse, is a practice which was often used as a justification for imperial power. Um, you know, and then so for me, and then again, I, I, I think of sort of, um, you know, and Susan Sontag in Illness's Metaphor, you know, she has this really brilliant opening line, which everyone cites is kind of, you know, we hold two passports, right? In the kingdom of the well and the kingdom of the sick, right? And then so for me, it, it kind of began, I mean, Pakistan itself was the kingdom of the well for me, right? And when I came to the United States, it became the kingdom of the sick. And it was kind of my dual citizenship kind of became, became this dual citizenship of different kingdoms of the well and the sick. But again, you know, it, if it weren't for the medical care I received in the U.S., you know, I probably still wouldn't be here, right? Because it, the care that you get in Pakistan is nowhere near what I could have received here. So, so you know, so it's kind of these contradictions um, that I, in my own, like, creative work, I, I sort of deal with, right? But again, you know, we say research is me-search. And, and so inevitably these things, um, you know, the legacy of colonial power, um, migration, um, and, and, and then, you know, illness, they inevitably affected what I was, you know, researching in my doctoral work. Um, um yeah, so yeah, wow. I will stop oh there for gosh. now and, I, and I sort of give you some wow, chance. Basan, that's like, there's just so much there. Um, and, and really, I mean, 
you know, um, this is a superhero origin story. Absolutely. Um, let me ask you for, for, for some who might not be as well-versed in some of these concepts and terms, when you talk about medical humanities, um, what exactly is medical humanities? And I'm going to ask the same of, of say, you know, post-colonial studies as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and thank you for, for asking me to sort of define my terms because I realize this is for, you know, a public audience. And um, so I'll start with medical humanities. Um, it's, it's a relatively recent field. It's an interdisciplinary field. Which, which strives to understand disease and illness, um, not through the usual biomedical models that you know, are perhaps are taught in medical schools and so forth. Um, it, it strives to understand the experience of illness from sociological, philosophical, literary perspectives, um, and sort of, you know, it entails, you know, and bioethics, I, I think, is a related field, although I, I, I would strongly, <laughs> because, you know, we say that human, the humanities is not a one-way train to ethics, right? Um, being a humanist will not necessarily make you a more ethical person. It, it can raise interesting questions about ethics. I, I think that is true, but, you know, but but yeah, to your point, um, so the medical humanities is basically this new um, uh, endeavor to sort of... Um, situate the medical profession in this historical context, right? And, and be attuned to, you know, different, um, uh, uh, you know, power interests, for instance, right? How does power influence the, the clinician and patient um, encounter, right? Um, how can we separate what disease is from illness, right? And that Arthur Kleinman very famously in 1988 made in the illness narratives, he made this very sort of influential distinction, right? So disease is what the biomed bio, what biomedicine identifies as some, what is happening in your body, but the illness is your own um, private um, conceptualization of what that disease does to you, right? And so it's much more subjective. Um, and so kind of playing on these distinctions, the medical humanities, you know, is striving. So even for medical professionals themselves to have better knowledge about the history of their own profession, right? Um, and, and yeah, and sort of in a very interdisciplinary way, bringing together literature, the arts, um, you know, history, philosophy, all these other things to bear on, you know, what, what healing is and, and what diseases and what, you know. Um, so, so that is to your first question, uh, the humanities. And, and then, and then so the post-colonial studies, of course, is, is, a, is, is much more, um, uh, is much older than med medical humanities is having a moment now in, you know, the two, in the 2000s, the 2010s. Post-colonial studies is a, is a much older phenomenon. It, you know, it emerged in the 70s, um, of course, with Edward Said's classic um, book, Orientalism, right, in which he kind he shows us how the Orient or the East is not this kind of static um, uh, entity, but something that is produced um, through Western conceptualizations and representations of of the people from the East or the people in the or and the Orient itself. Right, was it was an invention. Um, and so that changed the not only literary studies, but you know, anthropology, you know, again, Said identified anthropology as one of the very, very colonial um, disciplines, right? Um, and then so it had this very lasting impact 
on many different fields and, and it's, it, it urged scholars from very dis- different disciplines to sit with the history of empire, right? And, and, and consider its afterlives and how um, colonization, um, especially European colonization um, of, of different regions um, has these afterlives or effects which continue into the present day, right? So when we say post-colonial, we're not saying that colonialism is over. What we're saying is that colonialism has certain effects which last or which are durable into the present, right? And then, then often post-colonial studies scholars have to make that distinction, right? Because often, you know, um, for instance, indigenous scholars will say, well, how can you say, you know, if you're living in a settler colonial society, how can you say colonialism is over? And, and that is exactly the point, right? It, it's not over and we're still living with its afterlives right now. What a wonderful explanation of both areas that are so central to your own work, to your own me studies, as you call it. Because um, um, yes, after all, um, it is all about that, right? Um, all of my my superhero Latinx pop culture stuff is all me studies. Um, so, you know, parasitic empires, and I, I hope that's the title um, yes. that continues all the way through on, to the book. Um, it, what exactly is that? <laughs> yes, uh, great question. Um, yeah, so I, I so parasitic empires, and, and I'm trying to make two. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a Janus-faced project, right? It's trying to do th- two things at once, and sometimes it succeeds at doing that. Sometimes it fails. We, we'll, you know, we'll deal with that when the dissertation. I start to revise that into the book that it will eventually become. So, so I mean, for me, parasitic empires. So, so I'm taking the metaphor of the parasite, right? Um, and, 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 you know, the one thing, so the, one of the interventions is how um, uh, diseases were, certain diseases were racialized, right? And here I'm reusing the, the motif of the parasite to stand in for the microbial germ, right? So, I mean, today we have, um, we're much more um, sort of um, in, in modern medicine or at least contemporary med- biomedicine, the parasite is a very different microorganism from the bacteria and the bacteria is a very different organism from the, from the virus, right? And so, but these distinctions, at least in the period that I study in this book, which is starting from the 1870s onward, any kind of microbial germ was being called a parasite, right? Because, and again, the parasite was in itself um, a much more ancient formulation. You know, it went back to the Greeks it, it it referred to that that um, that person who eats at the table of another, right? Someone who mooches off another. Um, and then what this interesting thing happened where when you know they started conceptualizing biological parasites, you know this this social entity became a biological entity, right? So so one part of the project, what it's trying to do, is saying how does this the discourse of parasitology and bacteriology and germ theory how it was being racialized in particular spaces in the colonies, but also in, in the metropolitan centers of the empire. So that is so, so that is one thing. The other um, intervention I'm trying to make is again, taking the metaphor of the parasite, but then using it to make an intervention to how we understand um, imperial geopolitics, right? Um, and, and this is, in, and so as you know, as, an, as, a, as a scholar of the Anglophone, right? And this is again, a little bit of my me search is coming in here. I, I was, you know, sort of a little 
distraught to find that the, the U.S. empire was not being discussed as much or as thoroughly within post-colonial studies as opposed to British empire, right? I mean, because, you know, because we were, we were colonized by Britain, we tend to lean towards Britain and, and France as our lo loci of, of investigation. We don't often look to the U.S. empire, right? And then... And, and, and so American studies and American studies of empire were very much divorced from British studies of empire and post-colonial studies. And, and so the metaphor of the parasite, it allowed me to bring those two together, right? And, and what I discovered was in my research that a lot of you know, these, um, and, and what has been called the great rapprochement between the United States and the British empire after the 1890s, you know, there, it was a kind of parasitic imperial formulation, right? Within the British Empire, a lot of American industry was making its profits. South Africa, for instance, all the mining that was happening there, you know, the parasitic extraction, right, was being done through um, American machines. Um, and the examples are endless, right? Um, I recently gave a talk at, at an MLA uh, panel on um, the phenomenon of um, uh, dollar princesses, right? Um, when the landed gentry in Britain, you know, when their when their estates were, uh, you know, they were running out of money for their estates, they would bring these these very um, rich heiresses from the America, from the United States, right? And like Downton Abbey, for instance, you know, that's a very popular version of that, right? Where Cora she represents an American heiress whose money is then helping the Earl of Grantham, for instance, to you know keep his estate up. Right. So there was this very, you know, so there was this inter imperial interdependence between these two Anglophone nations. Right. Which I'm calling a parasitic, you know, because they're, they're very the, the Americans didn't have their own empire at the time. Right. They only got their insular um, territories in 1898. So before that, they were using the British Empire's um, colonial territories for their own gain. Right. And then conversely, the British gentry then is making money off American capital. Right. And, and so the parasite and then I show how this collaboration then is being done through Anglo-American, you know, medical doctors and parasitologists and they're collaborating amongst themselves as well. And, and so for me, then Parasitic Empires is this very kind of capacious um, project, right, where, you know, Im imperial geopolitics is playing a role, but then biomedicine is playing a role as well. And often these two things, you know, emerge or come together, you know. Um, but, but yeah, uh, so, so <laughs> I can speak more about that as well, but, you know, to your question. No, that's amazing. So I I know that um, through this this new lens, we can now go back to well, some of our beloved authors, uh, Bram Stoker, Joseph Conrad, Jack London, even Mark Twain. Yeah. Can you give us an example of how now we might I don't know um, reread some of these authors, maybe teach some of these authors through a parasitic empire's lens. For sure, yes, um, and and so I, actually, I'll, I'll start with the example of Henry James, you know, and that that's another thing about this project where it's like these very kind of difficult authors like James and Conrad then are put together with someone like Mark Twain or or you know or Bram Stoker, and and so I'm also trying to kind of undo this binary that we've made between sort of modernist and 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 popular and and you know um and 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 I think it makes sense to put these very different genres of writing together because they are emerging from particular historical conjunctures right and and so I will so I'll start with Henry James um in his very, in his, you know, beloved book, The Portrait of a Lady, for instance, um, you know, um, 
uh, Madame Merrill, who's just, you know, one of the, who's, she's a very mischievous and duplicitous character. Um, she literally refers to Americans in Europe as parasites crawling all over the surface, you know? <laughs> and so that's like a very literal way of, you know, but, but then what, what's really interesting is that, you know, the Touchets, for, for instance, you know, so uh, uh, Ralph Touchett, who is the, he, who is this, you know, invalid um, living in Britain, and his father, um, Touchett Sr., he has this very thriving business um, in, uh, centered in Britain, but he is an American, but these, the Touchets, they're Americans, right? And so this kind of brings in the capitalist sort of, or business interests that I'm trying to examine in, in the book, right? Where the Touchets represent capital, American capitalist interests in Britain. But then what's interesting is that Ralph Touchett, um, the um, he is he has tuberculosis, right? And and so he is sick. And then again, the parasite again is kind of coming together in these in terms of capitalism, but then also in terms of um, um, bacterial or, or or like you know parasitic illness, right? Um, and and so that is I think that is one way, right? Because I mean we know Henry James is the canonical author who has written about transatlantic and you know uh, life and relations, and and you know how American life is different from British life. And so there's this interesting, if we read this novel anew, you know, in this lens of this inter-imperial lens, you know, a lot of different readings come forth, right? So illness is there, um, capitalist parasitic extraction is there. Um, so that's one example. Um, another very, and, and so so that is from a very, you know, modernist, high realist novel. But then even if we read something like um, Mark Twain's unfinished book, um, it was called 3000 years among the microbes and it was pub it was well it left it was left unpublished and incomplete in 1905 that's when he wrote it um but it is really and it, it's it's so different from henry james and it's it's not a real it's actually an um an allegory and a science fiction allegory at that where this guy is transformed into a microbe into a cholera bacillus by a uh, by um a, a sorcerer and and then uh so and he becomes a cholera um, bacillus in the body of a Hungarian Jewish immigrant to the United States, which is interesting. So, which is again, there was you know there were lots of cholera epidemics that were happening in New York, which were associated with Jewish immigrants, um, and, and so that's that's an interesting part, right? So again, cholera, the parasitic germ is there, but what's very interesting is that even within the body of this of this Jewish um, immigrant, um, the the um, the narrator, who is the, the cholera germ, he he um, allegorizes certain parts of his body as the United States and certain parts as Britain, right? And then he kind of himself makes this sort of internal migration from the stomach, which is the United States, to Britain, which is another part of the body, right? <laughs> and, and then he also talks about um, dollar princesses, and he talks about how, you know, with some indignation about, oh, these American women who marry off, who ma get married to these British lords, they forget their national identity, and then they forget their American accent, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and so there's, again, you know, this confluence of, of um, American-British relations, but within, within this... Um, the, the symbolism of the germ and the parasite, right? So yeah, those are some examples. I, I can talk about Conrad and Stoker as well, which might be more familiar to, uh, but, but yes, uh, thank you for that question. Well, it's just quickly. So how does, is, is, what is Dracula? <laughs> 
very yes um good question so so with dracula actually and, and that's when i dracula was the first text to which i actually became interested in these turn of the century or like late victorian texts doing this kind of because in in dracula we have this texan character quincy morris right um and so you know speaking speaking from ut austin you know um so and and, and stoker was very very um um preoccupied with the rising power of the U.S., right, within uh, Britain's imperial world. And, and so Quincy Morris, you know, and so when and Dracula is, when you know, the vampire comes to Britain, there's this whole team of, of you know, um, characters who are, who uh, go out to hunt him down, right? So there's um, that, um, I believe, that, uh, I'm, I'm, um, uh, Van Helsing, right? So, so I believe he's Dutch, right? So he's but then there's also, and then the British characters, right? And then there is the, the fourth or the fifth is Quincy Morris, who's this American um, frontiersman who is also, right? And so for in that, so what I'm, and other scholars have already shown this, right? And Franco Moretti has this really great reading, right? Of, of um, the fact that it, Dracula himself was not just a threat to, it was actually Quincy Morris, because in the end, not only does Dracula die, Quincy Morris dies as well, trying to save Britain from the invasion that Dracula represents. So what Moretti is saying is that, you know, with Dracula, the American threat to British interests is also extinguished, right? And, and so I'm trying to make a, a similar argument here, but, in, but, but situating Dracula within like the yellow fever epidemic and the bubonic plague epidemics, which were happening both in the United States and the British Empire at the time. And I'm trying to show that um that that uh, the inclusion of Quincy Morris within this narrative shows how British and American you know uh, you know physicians but then also diplomats were working together to protect their countries from these racialized diseases coming from Asia and, and from the Caribbean and other places which is really what's really interesting about Dracula is that in the end Dracula is killed by two weapons so one is um uh, which the main character, the lawyer, I'm blanking on his name, um, he uses um, a, a weapon, a kukri knife, which is a knife that um, the Sikh regiments in the British Indian Army use. And then the second weapon is actually Quincy Morris's Bowie knife from, you know, and so there's this really beautiful symbolism, right, of the British Indian knife and then the Bowie knife. There's two, two kinds of Indian knives, you could say, which are then instrumental in, in killing Dracula, right? And, and so the knives, I think for me, was this really interesting inter-imperial tableau, right, of and how that then helps kill the parasite, which is, you know, presenting a danger to my goodness. Okay. Well, now I have to go back and reread <laughs> Dracula. Um, you know, Basam, I'm looking around and I see uh, my antibacterial wipes, <laughs> disinfectant wipes. Um, I have sanitizer gel that claims to kill germs and bacteria. Um, we've been living in this COVID pandemic now for two plus years. Where how are you seeing these metaphors, this, this language of sanitizer versus invader parasitic germ in today's world um, in, you know, everyday, in our everyday lives? 
Yeah, no, and that's a, that is the million dollar question, right? And, and my own, and, and often when I tell people about my project, they're like, oh, well, did you start writing this after COVID or before? And I was like, no, this was very much, a, you know, I'd already written my chapter on leprosy before and, and then COVID happened and it sort of, you know, sort of, it made my project more timely um, for better or for worse. Um, you know, and then like, you know, uh, and it, this has been a problem, I mean, well, you know, a generative problem for other scholars like Anjali Raza Cole, who came out with Epidemic Empire, which is very much a cousin book for parasitic empires. She had to revise her entire preface, you know, when, when COVID happened, right? And, and so she had to very much sort of situate her own scholarship within this larger context of, of you know, disease and racialization. And so for me, it, it's very much still, I mean, again, with monkeypox emerging, you know, and that's another thing that's now on my radar. Um, and we're, we're noticing a very similar pathologization of that as, as, as a kind of gay infectious disease, you know, and people are noticing, you know, and making the connection, oh, well, this was, you know, sort of emerging from, you know, like gay saunas in Madrid or whatever. Um, and, and so I, I think for me, it, it, these, you know, constant eruptions of epidemics, I, I think it's, it's behooves us to continue to question, you know, how time and again, these diseases are sort of um, being conflated or, or being used to demonize other com uh, communities, right? To so be it sexual minorities, racial minorities, what have you. Um, when, when I did, you know, my job talk at UT Austin, I actually started with an image, uh, which was sort of um, this heinous image um, from the Spanish newspaper, which depicted Black South Africans as, you know, sort of carriers of COVID, you know, after Omicron was identified. And it was just really these caricature of, of these, you know, these microbes on, on a ship <laughs> coming to the European Union. Um, and then so, you know, we, we continue to see, you know, I mean, it's almost as if we never learned anything from, you know, the HIV AIDS epidemic or, or the Ebola epidemic or, you know, of kind of this constant racialization um, you know, and, and, and so while I am, you know, I, I'm, and what parasitic empires, you know, it is, it continues to be, um, uh, um, sort of, uh, dedicated to this project of questioning, um, racialization, but I also, I think we want to do something, you know, more interesting, which is also that it is also, the parasite is also this really interesting, um, confluence of Anglo-American or Anglo-Saxon sort of solidarities, right? Um, and, and that, and, and you know, we had now finally we're beginning to see public scholarship. So you know, um, Daniel Immerwar's "How to Hide an Empire," but you know, everyone, you know, like you know, I mean, of course, American Empire is an established field in the academy. But then, when you look at the popular imagination, like Americans often don't know the history of their own empire, right? Um, or at least their overseas empire. And, and so I think what Parasitic Empire allows me to do is then also see, well, it was not just, you know, kind of um, white people pathologizing, you know, people, you know, Asians and black people as, as carriers. But then what's interesting is that when you look at British and American interimperiality, the British are also looking at the Americans as a kind of parasitic threat. Right. And, and, and so I think that allows me to kind of um, resist the essentialism, right, of kind of always saying, oh, well, you know, we, you know, the brown people or the black people are always the parasites. You know, sometimes you can even reverse that and say, well, it was actually, you know, the European conquerors who brought all of these novel diseases to the North American continent, right, which led to the decimation of indigenous peoples. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, so, I mean, again, it's, you know, in, the, in this day and age, 
yes, the, the point of the project is very much to continue to question racialization, but then also to, to imagine new ways of doing that, right? And, and I think that I'm doing through this, um, the conceptualization of, of US and British interests and, and um, relations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, of course, you know, dovetailing with, you know, some of the scholarship, but also just our own responses and reactions to the way kind of, you know, this flood of zombie invaders and how, you know, that's um, been classed or raced or gendered or, or you know, um, kind of put within a, you know, a parasitic kind of fear of anything uh, gender, queer, et cetera. Let me ask you, though, in, in very much a big part of your journey as a scholar, as a thinker, as a critical maker, is your poetry, your essays, um, I'm thinking of uninvited guests, just given our theme right now, mm-hmm. and how to be a parasite. Um, how does this weave into and kind of where where is this in, as a part of the journey of Bassam Siddiqui? Yes, um, right. I, yeah, I, I definitely think that my sort of creative um, uh, pursuits very much they're you know um, <laughs> parasitic with my critical pursuits. They're, they're very symbiotic. They're very you know you know, when I'm, I'm drawing on the philosopher Michel Serres and his book, The Parasite, I'm drawing on him for both my critical, like on the book project on Parasite Empires, but then also this memoir and essays that I'm working on of which How to Be a Parasite and Uninvited Guests are a part, right? And, and, and so I think what I'm trying to do then is sort of taking, um, of, of course, you know, sort of, sort of taking the, the parasite and, 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 you know, sort of engaging with it in different ways Um, but then, you know, I think for me, um, but the, the creative or the non, the creative nonfiction essays, again, of, of, of course, they're bringing in more of my own personal life, you know, and, and I'm trying to do a kind of auto theory there, you know, I'm, I've been inspired by scholars such as, you know, Saidia Hartman, you know, who've kind of brought in their own personal experiences, right? but then they're also doing theory with it, right? And doing a kind of critical fabulation um, and is the term that she uses. And, and I think in those ways, um, you know, sort of the, the notion of the parasite is this very capacious um, notion that then allows me to do this, these creative things, but then also this critical thing, these, you know, for my tenure book. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, but in that sense, you know, people, you know, if, if both of these are published, people who read them one after the other or together, they will notice that there are synergies and similarities, you know, and there's a reason why I am writing these two books together. Um, so yes, I mean, that, that's one, that's a short answer to your question. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, I, 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 I just think that, I mean, of course, the, the, the creative nonfiction essay as a form, right? It's allowing me to do something with my own personal experiences that, you know, but again, I would also, you know, say, well, you know, a lot of, you know, scholars are also bringing in their personal lives and their critical work. So it's, it's a very um, spurious distinction at the end of the day. Um, but, but yes, I mean, I mean, for now, and this is where I am, you know, kind of mm-hmm. uh, dr- drawing, you know, a healthy boundary <laughs> between the two projects, but then also keeping note of the ways in which they're speaking to one another. 
My goodness, Bassam, what a what a journey, what an origin story. Um, we have yet to see the kind of big resolutions and epiphanies, um, although I know you've had many along the way. But I'm, I, I just want to end by saying, um, well, you are very much a welcome and invited guest. And I thank you, Bassam, for sharing your journey with us today. Thank you so much, Fred. It was, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. Into the Colaverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Colaverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time.